This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, Ocean, or Atmospheric Scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Simon Peacock. Hi, Simon, and welcome to the Quarantine Conversations. Now, in this podcast series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? What are you? Uh, what, what am I? I'm a, I am a professor, and so I'm an experienced researcher and a teacher. Excellent. And uh, what do you teach? Um, I teach geology across the curriculum. So I'm currently teaching a first year uh, introductory class in physical geology, which is the landscapes and how the, our planet works. Um, I also teach uh, upper level undergraduates and I teach graduate seminars as well. Now, I know you teach a lot of different, a lot of different stuff. Uh, would you consider yourself to be a, a physical geologist or what kind of scientist would you call yourself? The technical term would, uh, would be a metamorphic petrologist. That's what I'm trained in, which means I study metamorphic rocks. These are rocks that have formed from other rocks but have been changed by heat and by pressure. That being said, much of my research spans a number of disciplines. And so I would consider myself a geoscientist and I collaborate with geophysicists and geochemists and geologists and all sorts of uh, subfields as well, all kind of under the heading of geoscientist. And how did you get into this field? I mean, geoscientist isn't really something we dress up for Halloween as. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may not, but uh, no. um, I, uh, as a young child, I used to um, take vacations in Southwest Scotland where my grandparents lived and they lived in, in the low mountains. And so I very early on learned to enjoy hiking uh, around the local hills and the mountains and, and looking a little bit at the rocks. There was some abandoned mines there that intrigued me. And that combined with a fantastic ninth grade teacher. Edmund Fapier was his name. He taught in, uh, in the New York's public school systems when I was a child. And he taught an honors geology class in ninth grade that I took that opened up the whole field to me and made me realize this is what I would like to try to do. And uh, as luck would have it, I was able to end up spending my entire life doing it. That's something I've heard over and over again. Um, it just takes one really passionate teacher to mm -hmm. set you on a path in your career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's going to be a different teacher for different students, different. Uh, and it's amazing to me that, you know, the same teacher that doesn't inspire some students inspires others. And so we need to have a, a, a diversity of our teachers and remind them just uh, how special they are and how they can spark an interest uh, that you may not even never find out about. Now, my ninth grade teacher has does know about me. I tracked him down after he retired and let him know how thankful I was for everything he taught me. Oh, that's really nice, that's really special. Now you do a lot of research. Uh, have you made any discoveries that you'd like to share? 
I've had some minor discoveries. I, I, I think we, thanks to my research, uh, together with colleagues, almost all of my research is done with others. Um, I think we know a little bit more about earthquakes that occur where two plates collide. And Vancouver here is a place where uh, we, we set atop a plate boundary. Uh, the plate boundary is exposed on the seafloor west of Vancouver Island, but that major fault uh, descends beneath our feet. And here we are in Vancouver, it's about 70 kilometers beneath our feet. Oh. If we could drill a hole that deep, which we can't, we would intersect the plate, which is diving down beneath us. That plate's called the Juan de Fuca plate. It starts out in the Pacific Ocean and dives down beneath us. So my research and together with my colleagues has taught us a little bit more about earthquakes in that setting. Uh, in particular, in 2001, there was a magnitude, I believe a 6.8 earthquake in Olympia, Washington. It's about 50 kilometers below Olympia. And it, we believe that earthquake was triggered by the release of water as a rock heated up. As rocks heat up, they drive off the water and that water can lubricate faults causing earthquakes. And in particular, that's an earthquake where um, it really does look like the type of rocks I study, the metamorphic rocks I mentioned earlier, are involved in triggering earthquakes. Yeah, the first time I, I saw you speak, you were actually talking about earthquakes. We're constantly told that the, the big one is coming. Mm -hmm. Should we be overly concerned or losing sleep over this? Should not be losing sleep over it. We should be prepared for it. It is inevitable. We unfortunately do not have the ability to predict when. This is, would be the holy grail of uh, earthquake science. Um, it's a, going to be a long way out until we have the ability to predict. I'm confident that I will not be able to, but it's quite possible that uh, students in um, elementary school today uh, may grow up and see some fundamental advances in our ability to predict earthquakes. With respect to the big one here, this is referring to a magnitude nine earthquake that would be uh, centered off, call it the west coast of Vancouver Island, and it would shake all the way down to Northern California. Uh, those magnitude nine earthquakes happen about every 500 years or so. This is, uh, it's not regular. The last one was in 1700 AD, so 320 years ago. Um, if it was like clockwork, we could rest easy for 180 years. Uh, unfortunately, it's not. Sometimes it's less than 500 years. Sometimes it's more than 500 years. So the best we can do is be prepared. We should have, uh, hopefully everyone listening to this knows the basic rules, which is to drop, take cover, and hold on during the earthquake. And then once the shaking has stopped, then that's when you want to get outside. Uh, so stop, take cover, hold on. <laughs> uh, don't give the year 2020 any ideas on more no, disasters to throw at us. <laughs> been enough of a year. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've heard that Vancouver's um, earthquake regimen is very similar to what we find in, in places like Chile. Um, why is it that different parts of the world have different like earthquake patterns? Well, if you look at a, a map of where earthquakes occur, a global map, you'll see that they don't occur randomly all over the earth. They occur in very well-defined belts that mark plate boundaries. And so the first question when assessing whether or not a country is at a risk of earthquakes is, are they located on a plate boundary? Here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, well, British Columbia and then 
the states of Washington, Oregon, and California, we lie in an active plate boundary, so we're subjected to earthquakes. Chile, the entire west coast of South America is a plate boundary uh, and has been subject to frequent large earthquakes. So Chile and ourselves up here in the Pacific Northwest and Japan, where we have significant financial resources as countries, we can invest that into uh, strong building codes and taking actions, preparing the citizens to reduce the uh, loss of life and reduce the damage caused by earthquakes. So Chile has been quite successful in enforcing strict building codes. Other parts of the world that aren't as wealthy and don't have the financial resources to, to invest, the construction standards don't hold up to earthquakes. And so the same size earthquake uh, results in many, many people losing their lives as those buildings collapse. So it's a combination of, are you located near a plate boundary where earthquakes occur? And what are your construction standards? Well, that's sad, but it, it's also good to know that at some point we may, may be able to um, build earthquake resistant uh, structures. And that's right. And even in um, developing countries, there's, there's been a lot of effort, like, well, what, you know, what can we do for these countries? And there's some techniques, building techniques that have came out of the Nepal earthquake recently and just a few years ago, where quite a few of the structures were damaged by the earthquake. Well, how do you rebuild that lacking the ability to, to, to modern things? Well, there's some relatively inexpensive solutions. Uh, you, you, can stay, uh, you can strengthen stone houses with chicken wire in ways that will help reduce damage in the next earthquake. Oh. That's great to know. <laughs> is this what you're researching currently? Um, I'm researching aspects of earthquakes. I also, we also use earthquakes to image the Earth's crust. Just like x-rays can image inside our bodies, earthquakes do the same thing as they pass through the Earth. They allow us to map structures and what's going on beneath us. That totally makes sense because like sonar and radar, that's all uh, waves traveling through the atmosphere. Or, or, or through water, and an earthquake is sending shockwaves out through rock. Exactly. And just like a CAT scan images the inside of the brain, earthquakes and seismometers taken together can image the inside of our planet. That's really cool. I never thought about, uh, I never thought about that. <laughs> Another way people like to describe that is um, astronomers turn their telescopes pointing outwards geoscientists point them inwards. So we turn those telescopes, they're not telescopes, they're seismographs, but we can kind of tune them like antennas to really focus in on specific areas that we want to know something about. And why would we be interested in what's going on underneath Earth or about mapping the, the layers beneath the surface of Earth? Well, it allows us then to determine where faults are and in particular what active faults are. Um, and therefore better prepare for the seismic hazards uh, that result. Ideally, again, the holy grail is that we're able to predict earthquakes. We're a long way away from that, but we do, you know, we look for, for changes, subtle changes all the time. And uh, when there is an earthquake, we go back and look, okay, did we miss something? Is there anything repeatable? Yeah, you know, it's important to know how close we are to the, the, an active fault. Um, and this is a challenging place here up in Vancouver. Uh, we have a lot of vegetation here, so it's not so easy to see faults the way it is, let's say, in the desert. And so it takes a bit more detective work 
and then we're, colleagues and I are working on just that. Wonderful. I imagine most of your, your work is uh, involves modeling and um, computer work. Uh, do you get into the field very often? I do get into the field, not necessarily as often as I would like, um, but I think it's important for all geologists to stay grounded in the field. And uh, my own research has always benefited from kind of the, as I do my computer simulations and my laboratory work, it asks questions about rocks. I go out in the field, I look at those rocks in context, and that makes me ask questions about the models I've been doing the simulations and the analyses. So it's a, there's a kind of a, a feedback loop between field-based work as well as the laboratory and computer-based work. Don't think I didn't catch what you just did there. I got that pun. Geologists need to stay grounded. <laughs> I hear that the craziest things happen out in the field. Um, some of my favorite stories are field stories from our earth, ocean, and atmospheric scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, has anything crazy ever happened to you out in the field? Um, I spent two and a half months in Antarctica. Oh, wow. So we were mapping just about 400 kilometers from the South Pole. In fact, the closest people to the five of us were the people at the South Pole station. And so five of us in, in tents, four geologists and a mountaineer, and you know, learning how to survive in you know, certainly one of the most inhospitable places on our planet. It obviously was very cold and we had lots of clothing that we had to put on in order to, to brave outside. All the water that we drank uh, had to be melted from snow. There was no running water there. So whenever we were in our, our tent camp, we were always melting snow as quickly as we could in order to drink water. I learned uh, how to fix snowmobiles uh, the hard way when we had snowmobiles to get around, but they uh, weren't really designed for the cold and the ice. And so they, we were routinely, uh, continually having to repair them as things broke and repairing things, we may or may not have had the parts. So sometimes we had to fix it with literally at times duct tape, which also doesn't stick very well in the cold, but you have to warm it up. So that was a, a once in a lifetime experience. I, I'm glad I've been able to get down there. I've done field work in, um, well, in the Alps, in uh, Arctic Norway and Sweden, in Northern California, and a few places here in BC. I have my share of um, stories involving snakes and bears and, and, and one deranged goat, but nothing compared to what many colleagues have. I, I wouldn't say my life was ever on the line facing any of those uh, critters, but um, part of the joys of hiking around in the mountains is that you get to, uh, to experience the mother nature and, and the animals. Since you mentioned that you've been, uh, you've done field work all over the world. Uh, one thing that I hear from a lot of people is that it can be really different depending on which country you're in. Uh, field work in BC is different than field work in Europe and uh, understandably it's different than field work in Antarctica. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything that you noticed that was really different or jarring? Oh, the geologies are often different and in particular the exposure. So for 20 years, I lived in Arizona. So the rocks there are beautifully exposed. There's no problem at all in identifying a fault and mapping that fault over hills and into valleys. In contrast, you come up here where everything is covered by a temperate rainforest and it's very difficult to, to locate the fault. Some of the best exposures are actually right along the coast. Kayaking is a, is a, a way one can do geology research here in, in British Columbia. 
different countries do have slightly different approaches to geologic mapping, um, often rooted in what the exposure is like. If you have great exposure, geologists are trained to map the contacts between different layers and to map the faults. If you don't have great exposure, you have to basically color your map with whatever rocks you happen to find, but it's less likely that you're gonna be able to find a contact and easily trace it. So that different countries uh, educate their geologists slightly differently, but I think all of us are after the same thing, which is to try to understand our planet and how it came together. Absolutely. And I have to ask, does uh, Antarctica get earthquakes or? No, it by and large doesn't because it is not near a plate boundary. It's in the middle of the Antarctic plate, the continents in the middle of the plate. And so it's a long way away to the nearest plate boundary. So that was one hazard we didn't have to worry about. <laughs> I can only imagine with all that ice, it would be a little uh, slippery and <laughs> disconcerting if you did have an earthquake down there. Yeah, depending on where you were, that would not be a good thing to have happen. Now we all have things that we love about our work and things that we don't enjoy quite as much. Uh, mm -hmm. What are some of your favorite, uh, some of the favorite aspects of your research and your work? Um, I guess the two things, I, I, I love to explore the mountains. And so I, I'm not a hardcore mountain climber. I, I don't use ropes and, and technical gear, but I, I love hiking and getting to the tops of the mountains to see the point of view, to see the 360 views. And my field work has, you know, has allowed me to do that. The, the type of rocks I study are found in mountains. So uh, that's a, one thing. The other thing I would answer is I, I like unraveling kind of geologic mysteries. You know, it's sometimes been said, you know, the scientific discoveries are less about the eureka moment and aha, and more about the, huh, that's funny. And then you start to scratch your head and you, uh, and you do some work and you can, uh, with effort, figure out these geologic mysteries. How did these rocks get to be here? How did rocks deposited in the ocean end up at the top of Mount Everest, for example? And you know, geologists have been able to figure out those types of mysteries and there's something in, I, I enjoy doing that. It's solving puzzles. That does something. Yes, it is. And I'm a big crossword fan too, so I don't know if it's the same <laughs> genes. Um, great. Now, that's the, the positive aspects of your work. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything that's caused you to struggle unfairly in, your, in the field of earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences? Not personally. Um, I, I, I've felt myself very fortunate. I had the opportunity to go to university. Um, and I found the geology departments wherever, whatever university I was at were always very welcoming and that the people in general are uh, very friendly, very inviting. Um, I recognize that that experience isn't the same for all uh, people seeking to enter geology and that's something I and my colleagues are committed to changing. Um, you know, it, we are not a particularly diverse science in terms of people of color. Uh, and other forms of diversity, and um, that needs to change. It is changing, but changing slowly. Um, but back to your original question, um, no, the thing, I, I, I feel fortunate. I've not had to struggle beyond what any geologist has to do, which is to struggle with the weather, whether it's cold or rain or what have you. 
Absolutely. And on a day like today, uh, when it's raining cats and dogs. Yeah. These are not the most fun days uh, to be uh, working in the field when it's bucketing. Um, but hey, sometimes that's when it, it happens, right? It rains anywhere, everywhere. And on a day like today, when it is uh, pouring cats and dogs, do you stay in your tent and just do field notes or do you actually go out and, and get soaked? Um, if I'm in my... If I'm doing a tent-based uh, research project and it's raining like this, I'm out mapping in the rain. I'll have my full-on rain gear. Yeah, I'm going to get wet. I'm going to be miserable. My map's going to get smeared up, but I'm in the field, so I need to do it. Um, it's uh, There were times, uh, uh, let's see, I was in Arctic Norway where it also rained a lot, but one time we got snowed out. So instead of rain, it became snow. And then when the snow hits the ground, you can't really see the rocks. We took that day off. Um, in Antarctica, it was, we would take days when the wind was too intense. When the wind was blowing so hard that the ice crystals made it so you couldn't see the surface, um, there wasn't much point in driving around. In fact, it was dangerous to be doing so. That By and large, if, um, if it's a field day, you, you, know, you, you take the weather you get. <laughs> That makes total sense. Uh, now, speaking of things which uh, can make field work or work in general dangerous, um, we've all been impacted by the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. Has that impacted your ability to do your research or um, have you been able to do your research from home? I've been uh, fortunate to be able to continue most of my research, which because it is um, computer-based and uh, I can do it uh, remotely as well as I can do it in my office. Some of my, uh, I've had a few field days this summer, not as many as I had planned, but because some of my work is related to the mining industry and that's an essential service, I've been able to uh, get out and look at rocks in the Yukon and in British Columbia. Um, the processing of those samples is not so easy. You know, it needs to be carefully scheduled so that we don't violate the, um, you know, the, the COVID-19 rules in terms of how many people can be in a, a given room. Um, and I do look forward to things opening up again. I think we're gonna be in this for a while though. And so um, just need to, need to adjust. Um, teaching has been more of an adjustment than the research. Teaching I have found uh, quite challenging. Doing it all face-to-face, -face, I, I miss the interaction with, with students um, and the energy that one has in a classroom. It's very, I find it very difficult to, uh, to um, really get that energy going and to draw on it myself in a, in a virtual world. Absolutely, I can certainly empathize with that. Mm -hmm. um, now, those are all of my preset questions. I do have one additional question. Mm -hmm. uh, you are a metamorphic geologist, so you study rocks that have been baked within our planet. Um, mm -hmm. What is your favorite metamorphic rock? I, a garnet schist, my, oh. a garnet bearing rock. Garnet would be my favorite metamorphic mineral because um, it tells us so much about how mountains form. Uh, we, we can, garnets are like the flight recorders of an, in an airplane crash. Uh, you can interrogate garnets to understand how that rock got caught up in a continent collision and then got brought back to the surface. Probably my favorite rock type is a, a rock called eclogite. And that's a garnet bearing rock. It's a started out life as a basalt, but was buried to 50 kilometers or more and came back up. Oh. And it 
changes from a dark kind of uh, a nondescript black rock you know, basalt into something that is green and red, looks like a Christmas tree. Oh, that sounds gorgeous. And I'm, I'm impressed. Sorry. That's why we call it metamorphism, like the metamorphosis of a of a caterpillar into a butterfly. <laughs> I'm very biased here, but um, metamorphic rocks are beautiful compared to the other types. But. <laughs> I like that you had that answer right at, at your fingertips too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon, as I said, those are all my questions. Um, did you have anything you want to say before I let you go for today? I know, but for people, uh, I guess the people listening to this podcast, uh, another way to think about geologists, uh, geologists are the little kids who collected stones and rocks that never stopped. And so some of us have managed to earn a living our entire lives by continuing to pick up rocks that we find just like we did as little children. That's a great uh, parting statement. Well, thank you, Simon, for your stories and your wisdom and your time. My pleasure, Daniel, and uh, stay dry today if you can. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.